section fifty one of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lily craik chapter four part twenty seven later elizabethan prose writers even the prose literature of the present period is much of it of so imaginative a character that it may be considered to be a kind of half poetry we have already traced the change which english prose writing underwent in the course of the second and third quarters of the sixteenth century passing from the familiar but elegant simplicity of the style of sir thomas more to the more formal and elaborate but still succinct and unencumbered rhetoric of ascham from thence to the affectations of lilly the euphuist and his imitators and finally out of what we may call that sickly and unnatural state of transition to the richly decorated eloquence of sydney along with sydney's famous work though of somewhat later date may be mentioned his friend spencer's view of the state of ireland written as has been already intimated probably in the year fifteen ninety six it is a composition worthy of the many-visioned poet full of matter full of thought full of life with passages of description in it that make present the distant and the past like the painter's colours the style has not so much that is outwardly imposing as sydney's but more inward vigour and earnestness as well as more compactness and sinew in short more of the true glow of eloquence more of a heart leaping within it and sending a pulse through every word and cadence on the whole by the end of the sixteenth century our prose as exhibited in its highest examples if it had lost something in ease and clearness had gained considerably in copiousness in sonorousness and in splendour in its inferior specimens also a corresponding change is to be traced but of a modified character in these the ancient simplicity and directness had given place only to a long-winded wordiness and an awkwardness and intricacy sometimes so excessive as to be nearly unintelligible produced by piling clause upon clause and involution upon involution in the endeavour to crowd into every sentence as much meaning or as many particulars as possible here the change was nearly altogether for the worse the loss in one direction was compensated by hardly anything that could be called a gain in another it ought also to be noticed that towards the close of the reign of elizabeth a singularly artificial mode of composition became fashionable more especially in sermons and other theological writings consisting mainly in the remotest or most recondite analogies of thought and the most elaborate verbal ingenuities or conceits this may be designated the opposite pole in popular preaching to what we have in the plainness and simplicity natural sometimes even to buffoonery 
of latimer translation of the bible the authorized translation of the bible on the whole so admirable both for correctness and beauty of style is apt on the first thought to be regarded as exhibiting the actual state of the language in the time of james i when it was first published it is to be remembered however that the new translation was formed by the special directions of the king upon the basis of that of parker's or the bishop's bible which had been made nearly forty years before and which had itself been founded upon that of cranmer made in the reign of henry the eighth the consequence is as mr hallam has remarked that whether the style of king james's translation be the perfection of the english language or no it is not the language of his reign it may in the eyes of many adds mr hallam be a better english but it is not the english of daniel or raleigh or bacon as any one may easily perceive it abounds in fact especially in the old testament with obsolete phraseology and with single words long since abandoned or retained only in provincial use this is perhaps rather strongly put for although the preceding version served as a general guide to the translators and was not needlessly deviated from they have evidently modernized its style not perhaps quite up to that of their own day but so far we apprehend as to exclude nearly all words and phrases that had then passed out even of common and familiar use in that theological age indeed few forms of expression found in the bible could well have fallen altogether into desuetude although some may have come to be less apt and significant than they once were or than others that might now be substituted for them but we believe the new translators in any changes they made were very careful to avoid the employment of any mere words of yesterday the glare of whose recent coinage would have contrasted offensively with the general antique colour of diction which they desired to retain if ever their version were to be revised whether to improve the rendering of some passages by the lights of modern criticism or to mend some hardness and intricacy of construction in others it ought to be retouched in the same spirit of affectionate veneration for the genius and essential characteristics of its beautiful diction and a good rule to be laid down might be that no word should be admitted in the improved renderings which was not in use in the age when the translation was originally made the language was then abundantly rich enough to furnish all the words that could be wanted for the purpose theological writers james i bishop andrews dunn hall hooker besides the translation of the bible the portion of the english literature of the present period that is theological is very great in point of quantity and a part of it also possesses distinguished claims to notice in a literary point of view religion was the great subject of speculation and controversy in this country throughout the entire space of a century and a half between the reformation and the revolution and nothing can more strikingly illustrate the universality of the interest that was now taken in theological controversy than the fact that both the kings whose reigns fill the first half of the seventeenth century have left us a considerable quantity of literary manufacture of their own 
and that it is almost all theological the writings of charles i will be noticed afterwards king james whose works were collected and published in a folio volume in sixteen sixteen under the care of dr montague bishop of winchester had given to the world what he called a fruitful meditation upon part of the apocalypse in form of ain sermon so early as the year fifteen eighty eight when he was only a youth of two and twenty indeed according to bishop montague's account this performance was written by his majesty before he was twenty years of age soon after on the destruction of the spanish armada he produced another meditation on certain verses of one of the chapters of the first book of chronicles among his subsequent publications are meditations on the lord's prayer and on some verses of the twenty-seventh chapter of st matthew and nearly all his other works his demonology first published in fifteen ninety seven his true law of free monarchies fifteen ninety eight his basilicon doron or advice to his son prince henry fifteen ninety nine his apology for the oath of allegiance sixteen o five are in the main theological treatises it is scarcely necessary to add that they are of little or no value either theological or literary though they are curious as illustrating the intellectual and moral character of james who was certainly a person of no depth either of learning or of judgment though of some reading in the single province of theology and also of considerable shrewdness and readiness and an inexhaustible flow of words which he mistook for eloquence and genius one of the most eminent preachers perhaps the most eminent of the age of elizabeth and james was dr lancelot andrews who after having held the sees of chichester and ely died bishop of winchester in sixteen twenty six bishop andrews was one of the translators of the bible and is the author among other works of a folio volume of sermons published by direction of charles i soon after his death of another folio volume of tracts and speeches which appeared in sixteen twenty nine of a third volume of lectures on the ten commandments published in sixteen forty two and of a fourth containing lectures delivered at st paul's and at st giles's cripplegate published in sixteen fifty seven he was perhaps the most learned of the english theologians of that learned time and was besides a person of great vigour and acuteness of understanding so that his death was regarded by scholars both at home and abroad as the extinction of the chief light of the english church milton then a youth of seventeen bewailed the event in a latin elegy full of feeling and fancy and even in a tract written many years afterwards when his opinions had undergone a complete change he admits that bishop andrews of late years and in these times the primate of armagh usher for their learning are reputed the best able to say what may be said in defence of episcopacy both the learning and ability of andrews indeed are conspicuous in everything he has written but his eloquence nevertheless is to a modern taste grotesque enough 
in his more ambitious passages he is the very prince of verbal posture-masters if not the first in date the first in extravagance of the artificial quibbling syllable tormenting school of our english pulpit rhetoricians and he undoubtedly contributed more to spread the disease of that manner of writing than any other individual not only did his eminence in this line endear him to the royal tastes of elizabeth and james all men admired and strove to copy after him fuller declares that he was an inimitable preacher in his way and then he tells us that pious and pleasant bishop felton his contemporary and colleague endeavoured in vain in his sermons to assimilate his style and therefore said merrily of himself i had almost marred my own natural trot by endeavouring to imitate his artificial amble many a natural trot andrews no doubt was the cause of spoiling in his day and long after it this bishop is further very notable in the history of the english church as the first great asserter of those semi-popish notions touching doctrines rights and ecclesiastical government with which laud afterwards blew up the establishment andrews however was a very different sort of person from laud as superior to him in sense and policy as in learning and general strength and comprehensiveness of understanding a well-known story that is told of him proves his moderation as much as his wit and readiness when he and dr neale bishop of durham were one day standing behind the king's chair as he sat at dinner it was the day on which james dissolved his third parliament and the anecdote is related on the authority of waller the poet who was present his majesty turning round addressed the two prelates my lords cannot i take my subjects money when i want it without all this formality in parliament the bishop of durham readily answered god forbid sir but you should you are the breath of our nostrils whereupon the king turned and said to the bishop of winchester well my lord what say you sir replied the bishop i have no skill to judge of parliamentary cases the king answered no put-offs my lord answer me presently then sir said he i think it is lawful for you to take my brother neil's money for he offers it clarendon has expressed his belief that if archbishop bancroft had been succeeded in the see of canterbury by andrews instead of abbott the infection of the geneva fire would have been kept out which could not afterwards be so easily expelled dunn the poet was also a voluminous writer in prose having left a folio volume of sermons besides a treatise against popery entitled the pseudo martyr another singular performance entitled beathanatos in confutation of the common notion about the necessary sinfulness of suicide and some other professional disquisitions his biographer isaac walton says that he preached as an angel from a cloud but not in a cloud but most modern readers will probably be of opinion that he has not quite made his escape from it his manner is fully as quaint in his prose as in his verse and his way of thinking as subtle and peculiar 
his sermons are also as well as those of andrews overlaid with learning much of which seems to be only a useless and cumbersome show doubtless however there are deep and beautiful things in Dunn for those that will seek for them as has indeed been testified by some who in modern times have made themselves the best acquainted with these long-neglected theological works of his another of the most learned theologians and eloquent preachers of those times was as well as Dunn, an eminent poet bishop joseph hall hall's english prose works which are very voluminous consist of sermons polemical tracts paraphrases of scripture casuistical divinity and some pieces on practical religion of which his contemplations his art of divine meditation and his enochismus or treatise on the mode of walking with god are the most remarkable the poetic temperament of hall reveals itself in his prose as well as in his verse by the fervour of his piety and the forcible and often picturesque character of his style in which it has been thought he made seneca his model the writer of the satires observes wharton is perceptible in some of his gravest polemical or scriptural treatises which are perpetually interspersed with excursive illustrations familiar allusions and observations on life it will be perceived from all this that both in style and in mind hall and dunn were altogether opposed neither in his prose nor in his verse has the former the originality of the latter or the fineness of thought that will often break out in a sudden streak of light from the midst of his dark sayings but on the other hand he is perfectly free from the dominant vices of dunn's manner his conceits his quaintness his remote and fantastic analogies his obscurity his harshness his parade of a useless and encumbering erudition last of all may be mentioned among the great theological writers of this great theological time one who stands alone richard hooker the illustrious author of the eight books of the laws of ecclesiastical polity of which the first four were published in fifteen ninety four the fifth in fifteen ninety seven the three last not till sixteen thirty two many years after the author's death hooker's style is almost without a rival for its sustained dignity of march but that which makes it most remarkable is its union of all this learned gravity and correctness with a flow of genuine racy english almost as little tinctured with pedantry as the most familiar popular writing the effect also of its evenness of movement is the very reverse of tameness or languor the full river of the argument dashes over no precipices but yet rolls along without pause and with great force and buoyancy bacon undoubtedly the principal figure in english prose literature as well as in philosophy during the first quarter of the seventeenth century is francis bacon bacon born in fifteen sixty one published the first edition of his essays in fifteen ninety seven his two books of the advancement of learning in sixteen o five his wisdom of the ancients in latin in sixteen ten a third edition of his essays greatly extended in sixteen twelve his two books of the novum organum or second part of the instauratio magna designed to consist of six parts also in latin 
in sixteen twenty his history of the reign of henry the seventh in sixteen twenty two his nine books de argumentis scientiarum a latin translation and extension of his advancement of learning in sixteen twenty three he died in sixteen twenty six the originality of the baconian or inductive method of philosophy the actual service it has rendered to science and even the end which it may be most correctly said to have in view have all been subjects of dispute almost ever since bacon's own day but notwithstanding all differences of opinion upon these points the acknowledgment that he was intellectually one of the most colossal of the sons of men has been nearly unanimous they who have not seen his greatness under one form have discovered it in another there is a discordance among men's ways of looking at him or their theories respecting him but the mighty shadow which he projects athwart the two bygone centuries lies there immovable and still extending as time extends the very deductions which are made from his merits in regard to particular points thus only heighten the impression of his general eminence of that something about him not fully understood or discerned which spite of all curtailment of his claims in regard to one special kind of eminence or another still leaves the sense of his eminence as strong as ever as far as novum organum or so-called new instrument of philosophy it may be that it was not really new when he announced it as such either as a process followed in the practice of scientific discovery or as a theory of the right method of discovery neither may bacon have been the first writer in his own or the immediately preceding age who recalled attention to the inductive method or who pointed out the barrenness of what was then called philosophy in the schools nor can it be affirmed that it was really he who brought the reign of that philosophy to a close it was falling fast into disrepute before he assailed it and would probably have passed away quite as soon as it did although his writings had never appeared nor possibly has he either looked at that old philosophy with a very penetrating or comprehensive eye or even shown a perfect understanding of the inductive method in all its applications and principles as for his attempts in the actual practice of the inductive method they were it must be owned either insignificant or utter failures and that too while some of his contemporaries who in no respect acknowledged him as their teacher were turning it to account and extorting from nature the most brilliant revelations nay can it be doubted that if bacon had never lived or never written the discoveries in the writings of galileo and kepler and pascal and others who were now extending the empire of science by the very method which he has explained and recommended but most assuredly without having been instructed in that method by him would have established the universal recognition of it as the right method of philosophy just as early as such recognition actually took place that bacon's novum organum has even down to the present day affected in any material degree the actual progress of science may be very reasonably questioned what great discovery or improvement can be named among all those that have been made since his time which from the known facts of its history we may not fairly presume would have been made at any rate though the no-worm organum had never been written what instance can be quoted of the study of that work having made or even greatly contributed to make any individual 
a discoverer in science who would not in all probability have been equally such if he had never seen or heard of it in point of fact there is no reason to believe that almost any of those by whom science has been most carried forward since it appeared had either much studied bacon's novum organum or had even acquired any intimate or comprehensive acquaintance with the rules and directions therein laid down from other sources nor is it likely that they would have been more successful experimenters or greater discoverers if they had for there is surely nothing in any part of the method of procedure prescribed by bacon for the investigation of truth that would not occur of itself to the sagacity and common sense of any person of an inventive genius pursuing such investigation indeed every discovery that has been made except by accident since science had any being must have been arrived at by the very processes which he has explained there can be little doubt that it would be found on a survey of the whole history of scientific discovery that its progress has always depended partly upon the remarkable genius of individuals partly upon the general state of the world and the condition of civilization at different times and not in any sensible degree upon the mere speculative views as to the right method of philosophy that have at particular eras been taught in schools or books or otherwise generally diffused in fact it is much more reasonable to suppose that such speculative views should have been usually influenced by the actual progress of discovery than it by them for the recognition of sound principles of procedure in as far as that is implied in their practical application though not perhaps the contemplation and exposition of them in a systematic form is necessarily involved as has been just observed in the very act of scientific discovery all this being considered there cannot well be attributed to bacon's novum organum any considerable direct share nor even much indirect influence in promoting the progress which science has made in certain departments since his time it is most probable that that progress is to be traced to other causes altogether and that it would have been pretty nearly what it is though the novum organum never had been written galileo and not bacon is the true father of modern natural philosophy that in truth was not bacon's province at all neither his acquirements nor the peculiar character and constitution of his mind fitted him for achieving anything on that ground the common mistake regarding him is the same as if it were to be said that not homer but aristotle was the father of poetry because he first investigated and explained the principles or philosophy of a part of the art of poetry bacon belongs not to mathematical or natural science but to literature and to moral science in its most extensive acceptation to the realm of imagination of wit of eloquence of aesthetics of history of jurisprudence of political philosophy of logic of metaphysics and the investigation of the powers and operations of the human mind he is either not at all or in no degree worth mentioning as an investigator or expounder of mathematics or of mechanics or of astronomy or of chemistry or of any other branch of geometrical or physical science but he is a most penetrating and comprehensive investigator and a most magnificent expounder of that higher wisdom in comparison with which all these things are but a more intellectual sort of legerdemain all his works his essays his philosophical writings commonly so called and what he has done in history are of one and the same character reflective and so to speak poetical not simply demonstrative or elucidatory of mere matters of fact what then is his glory in what did his greatness consist in this we should say that an intellect at once one of the most capacious and one of the most profound ever granted to a mortal 
in its powers of vision at the same time one of the most penetrating and one of the most far-reaching was in him united and reconciled with an almost equal endowment of the imaginative faculty and that he is therefore of all philosophical writers the one in whom are found together in the largest proportions depth of thought and splendour of eloquence his intellectual ambition also a quality of the imagination was of the most towering character and no other philosophic writer has taken up so grand a theme as that on which he has laid out his strength in his greatest works but with the progress of scientific discovery that has taken place during the last two hundred years it would be difficult to show that these works have had almost anything to do his advancement of learning and his novum organum have more in them of the spirit of poetry than of science and we should almost as soon think of fathering modern physical science upon paradise lost as upon them a late distinguished writer mr hallam in his history of european literature although his estimate of what bacon has done for science is much higher than we are able to go along with yet in the following passage seems to come very near to the admission of or at least very strongly to corroborate much of what has just been advanced it is evident that he had turned his thoughts to physical philosophy rather for an exercise of his reasoning faculties and out of his insatiable thirst for knowledge than from any peculiar aptitude for their these or such subjects much less any advantage of opportunity for their cultivation he was more eminently the philosopher of human than of general nature hence he is exact as well as profound in all his reflections on civil life and mankind while his conjectures in natural philosophy though often very acute are apt to wander far from the truth in consequence of his defective acquaintance with the phenomena of nature his centuries of natural history give abundant proof of this he is in all these inquiries like one doubtfully and by degrees making out a distant prospect but often deceived by the haze but if we compare what may be found in the sixth seventh and eighth books de argumentis in the essays the history of henry the seventh and the various short treatises contained in his works on moral and political wisdom and on human nature from experience of which all such wisdom is drawn with the rhetoric ethics and politics of aristotle or with the historians most celebrated for their deep insight into civil society and human character with thucydides tacitus philip de comines machiavel de villa hume we shall i think find that one man may almost be compared with all of these together when galileo is named as equal to bacon it is to be remembered that galileo was no moral or political philosopher and in this department leibniz certainly falls very short of bacon burke perhaps comes of all modern writers the nearest to him but though bacon may not be more profound than burke he is still more copious and comprehensive burton a remarkable prose work of this age which ought not to be passed over without notice is burton's anatomy of melancholy robert burton who on his title page takes the name of democritus jr died in sixteen forty and his book was first published in sixteen twenty one it is an extraordinary accumulation of out-of-the-way learning interspersed somewhat in the manner of montaigne's essays with original matter but with this among other differences that in montaigne the quotations have the air of being introduced as we know that in fact they were to illustrate the original matter which is the web of the discourse they but the embroidery whereas in burton the learning is rather the web upon which what he has got to say of his own is worked in by way of forming a sort of decorative figure burton is far from having the variety or abundance of montaigne but there is considerable point 
and penetration in his style and he says many striking things in a sort of half splenetic half jocular humour which many readers have found wonderfully stimulating dr johnson declared that burton's anatomy of melancholy was the only book that ever drew him out of bed an hour sooner than he would otherwise have got up historical writers among the historical writers of the reign of james may be first mentioned the all-accomplished sir walter raleigh raleigh is the author of a few short poems and of some miscellaneous pieces and prose but his great work is his history of the world composed during his imprisonment in the tower and first published in a folio volume in sixteen fourteen it is an unfinished work coming down only to the first macedonian war and there is no reason to suppose that any more of it was ever written although it has been asserted that a second volume was burnt by the author raleigh's history as a record of facts has long been superseded the interest it possesses at the present day is derived almost entirely from its literary merits and from a few passages in which the author takes occasion to allude to circumstances that have fallen within his own experience much of it is written without any ambition of eloquence but the style even where it is most careless is still lively and exciting from a tone of the actual world which it preserves and a certain frankness and heartiness coming from raleigh's profession and his warm impetuous character it is not disfigured by any of the petty pedantries to some one or other of which most of the writers of books in that day gave way more or less and it has altogether comparatively little of the taint of age upon it while in some passages the composition without losing anything of its natural grace and hardiness is wrought up to great rhetorical polish and elevation another celebrated historical work of this time is richard knowles's history of the turks published in sixteen ten johnson in one of his ramblers has awarded to knowles the first place among english historians and mr hallam concurs in thinking that his style and power of narration have not been too highly extolled by that critic his descriptions continues mr hallam are vivid and animated circumstantial but not to feebleness his characters are drawn with a strong pencil in the style of knowles there is sometimes as johnson has hinted a slight excess of desire to make every phrase effective but he is exempt from the usual blemishes of his age and his command of the language is so extensive that we should not err in placing him among the first of our elder writers much of this praise however is to be considered as given to the uniformity or regularity of knowles's style the chief fault of which perhaps is that it is too continuously elaborated and sustained for a long work we have already mentioned samuel daniel's history of england from the conquest to the reign of edward the third which was published in sixteen eighteen it is of little historical value but is remarkable for the same simple ease and purity of language which distinguished daniel's verse the contribution to this department of literature of all those that the early part of the seventeenth century produced which is at the same time the most valuable as an original authority and the most masterly in its execution is undoubtedly bacon's history of the reign of henry the seventh the series of popular national chronicles was continued in this period from the publication of edward hall's union of the two nobles and illustrious families of york and lancaster in fifteen forty eight by that of richard grafton's chronicle at large down to the first year of queen elizabeth in fifteen sixty nine of raphael holinshed's chronicles of england scotland and ireland in fifteen seventy seven and by the various publications of the laborious antiquaries john stowe and john speed namely stowe's summary of the english chronicles of which he published many editions between fifteen sixty five and fifteen ninety eight his annals also frequently reprinted with corrections and enlargements between fifteen seventy three and sixteen hundred his survey of london first published in fifteen ninety eight and again with editions in sixteen o three and speed's theatre of the empire of great britain sixteen o six and his history of great britain coming down to the accession of james i sixteen fourteen these various works of stowe and speed rank among the head sources or fountains of our knowledge in the department of national antiquities 
classical learning with the exception of a magnificent edition of chrysostom in eight volumes folio by sir henry saville printed at eton where saville was provost of the college in sixteen twelve scarcely any great work in the department of ancient scholarship appeared in england in the portion of the seventeenth century which preceded the breaking out of the civil war it however produced a number of works written in latin by englishmen which still retain more or less celebrity among others the illustrious camden's britannia first published in fifteen eighty six but not enlarged to the form in which its author ultimately left it till the appearance of the sixth edition in sixteen o seven the same writers annals rerum anglicarum regnante elizabetha the first part of which was printed in sixteen fifteen the sequel not till after camden's death john barclay's two poetical romances of the euphormio the first part of which was published in sixteen o three and the more famous are genus sixteen twenty one lord herbert's treatise de raritate sixteen twenty four and the mare clausum the uxor hebraica and other works of the most learned john selden end of section fifty one end of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lily craig